Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. It's always such a great privilege to have you come and listen and the notes that you send us. We appreciate the emails are just terrific. Uh, we had a terrific forecast last week and an even better lineup for you this week. So much to talk about. The president has been to the G20. The president has the president of the United States has been to North Korea. There's something that nobody's ever been able to say before. Uh, today is July the 2nd. We're quickly coming to the uh, 4th of July celebration here in the United States, and markets are celebrating right along. U.S. stocks ended in positive territory uh, again today, uh, making uh, new all-time highs. We saw positive close on the S&P, the Dow, and the NASDAQ composite. The 10-year Treasury note yield, uh, the bond prices rallied, the note prices rallied, but that took the yield down below 2%. Once again, uh, oil was off, gold was up. Fascinating combination. We're going to get uh, together with my friend Jim Urio. You're the big fan favorite, Jim Urio, from the floor of the Chicago Exchange uh, to explain all this to us because God knows I need some help. But remember first that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make. So let's be careful with it, huh? We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, we believe that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. Emotion, that fear or greed or ebullience, will take you in the wrong direction most every time. So find your facts, do your research, be data-driven and dispassionate. Doggedly data-driven and dis- boy, that was alliterative, wasn't it? I like it. Fantastic. And yes. dispassionate. Do you like that? Huh? I mean, that was pretty good. For Poetic. Show, Uriel, yeah. I mean, for for you know, late in the day on a on a Tuesday when we've been actually working for a living, that's good for me. Okay. Amen. Uh, yeah. So as my, you're hearing the dulcet tones of our great friend Jim Urio, who's managing director at TJM Institutional Services, has been working on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange since 1987. He is uh, one of the uh, most frequent, most popular CNBC contributors, too. It's one of those times I actually turn the volume up on the set when I see Yurio there. Um, And uh, he's just one of the smartest guys I know. And ladies and gentlemen, as you've come to say and mention in your notes, he also sounds like one of the nicest guys that we have on the forecast. He is. Jim, welcome back. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, We're glad you're here. It's a treat. Uh, So, Jim. Uh, you know, let the pigeons loose. We can celebrate here. Uh, it, markets are going higher. Yields are going lower. The president's singing Kumbaya with uh, President Xi. And uh, what, what do they call him? The dear leader? What is his official title, Kim? The, 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 the dear leader? I don't know. know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Polkari, but... Polkari calls him chubby, and I don't think that's respectful enough. It seems not nice to call him that, yes. No, I don't think Paul Curry is very nice when he calls uh, Kim Jong-un chubby. And we like to be more respectful than terms like chubby on the forecast. So I'm not going to use the term chubby, but I'd love to. Is he the premier? I mean, I know he's, they, they refer to him as the dear leader. Anyway, it was all good news. Harry, you can figure out what I'm supposed to call him, please. Jim, what do you okay. make of the, all these markets? Why is, it, uh, why is it all so fabulous here? Well, because it's because of the Fed. I, I hate It makes me... Nervous even to say that. It makes me feel dirty to say that. But even let's think of what happened on let's think of what happened on Sunday night. We came to 
what kind of trade agreement? There's no real trade agreement. It's just with some nice words. And at the end of the day, I think that's almost even better because if there was a real trade agreement and it was substantive and things were going to be better on that arena, then the, we, the next thing we'd be looking at is the Fed to pull back a little bit from their, their dovish stance. Um, but this is almost even perfect. Like the trade, uh, the trade uh, skirmish, whatever we're going to call it, is going to hang around a little bit, and the Fed is going to still be relatively dovish. That being said, I think they're going a quarter in 30 days or whenever that meeting is. I think they'd be silly at this point in time to go 50 base points. I think they're going to move back the, the rate hike they did in December, but I think the market loves a dovish Fed. Well, okay, so I have a different take, and I, I, I hope, I actually hope that I'm right about this. But I think as I've mentioned to you before, I, I talked with a few of the Fed uh, presidents, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, but uh, both Loretta Mester and two or three others came out publicly back in January and February, and I remember way back then, I actually gave a speech with, with uh, uh, Dr. Mester at the University of Delaware back over the winter about the economic forecast. Uh, but they were saying that they thought in the summer that they would stop the sales of the Fed's portfolio. And I'm thinking, Jim, that maybe that's the announcement that they that, that at this next uh, that at this next meeting, instead of a cut, they simply announced they're going to stop the sales of the portfolio and probably wait till the September meeting. I would love to see that. So maybe that's just me being wishful thinking. But do you think they could get away with that? Sure, but they have to prep the market for it quite a bit. I mean, you know, they have a lot of time to do that, and they got to they got to make sure that we're not disappointed when the time comes. Um, you know, most That's Fed meetings, point. we yeah, like we basically know what they're going to do ahead of time. There was one meeting um, I can't, about two years ago. I remember. I think we called it the September surprise, but I might be getting some of my yeah. uh, facts incorrect. And and markets don't like to be surprised. I actually think. They, it, it, it's almost silly how transparent they try to be because markets just get kind of knocked around when they change their rhetoric. But uh, if, they walk, if they walk that in nicely, I think it's a tough one to do because market wants to, wants to cut right now. And I want to take back something I said a second ago. I said the market likes the dovish Fed. That's only part of the story. The market's like, market likes a Fed that they think is slightly unnecessarily dovish. If the Fed turned dovish and, and we saw things falling apart like we did in you know, two different times in the last uh, 25 years, um, right. that would be a totally different thing. If the market believes the Fed's turning a little dovish and – they don't really need to be. That's where the magic happens. Okay, Jim Murio is now chairman of the Fed. Uh, with Forget where they have sort of announced that they're going to do or not going to do. Would you ease here? Would you cut rates here, Jim Murio, chairman heck, of the Fed? Heck no. Can I convert my portfolio to two-year notes ahead of time? Because that's what I want to do. <laughs> and then, heck no. The market doesn't need easy money at all. All it does... It, here's here's what I truly believe. Prior to 19, I believe it was 90 when I was doing my research, it seemed like recessions occurred every like two to four years. Yes. Since 1992, recessions occurs every every eight to 10 years, and they're much, much worse. So what happens in the meantime is the activist Fed um, takes away any chance of a regular trimming of the hedges, and it all builds up to this big implosion. Now, I don't see what on the my horizon looks like it's going to implode. So I think we're fully in the midst of a bubble-creating uh, sort of thing, but that might not appear for years. But to answer your question, no, that we don't need a rate cut. We don't need a rate cut at all. The only reason we'd need a rate cut is if you wanted uh, you know, risk assets to go higher. 
So Far and Urio both agree that should scare the hell out of everybody. Amen. No, yeah. we don't. We, you're right, Richard. But we do not need a rate cut. And 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 let me let, let me just explain what I and uh, because I and let me tell you why I think we don't need a rate cut. I think we don't need a rate cut because we've got uh, basically the economy's growing. There's plenty of liquidity uh, in in the market. Uh, we're, we're not in crisis. We're not in recession. There's nothing really wrong here. And earnings growth is 4 to 5% right now. Yes. Uh, you get everybody agreeing there. So what should you see in terms of stock market returns? If price-to-earnings multiples stay flat, you should see a 5% return from stocks on, on appreciation. Maybe you get a 2% dividend. Maybe you can find 7% total return from stocks. We're up 20% this year. That's margin expansion. This is how bubbles get made, isn't it? Of course it is, and that's what I think they'll end up doing. And like I said, neither of us would, would do this, would, would uh, you know, ease if we were on the Fed. But our job is not necessarily, we're not on the Fed. Our job is to look at asset prices and see where the best place to be is. And I still think that you have to be in stocks. I think that they are so terrified of stock markets correcting what we would call a normal correction. I remember back in August of, I believe it was 17 in the stock, but one day they came out and said there was a case for tightening and the stock market corrected 8%. And I think it was James Bullard came back out and said the case for tightening is, uh, has changed or something like that. The only thing that changed the stock market was down 8%. You know? Well, Bullard is the first one to a microphone almost every time, but you don't know which way he's going to go. I mean, you really have to, I mean, you know, read his lips very closely. Bullard can fly both ways. But uh, I, I really do think that this is how, this is how bubbles form. When all of a sudden you start driving share prices above and away from fundamentals, which is what this easy money does, you're going to create a big problem for yourself. So, Amen. And when, but when does, it, when does it come unwound? I mean, I've been through this before. During the run-up to the great you know, yep. real estate, great recession, I had a partner who told me every day exactly how this was going to happen. And he showed me what the portfolios of Lehman was, yep. what Smith Barney was. And you know what? We didn't make a penny on that because you, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid. You remember, uh, you remember Chuck, um, what's his name at Citigroup? Chuck um, oh, Prince. Uh, Prince. Chuck yeah. Prince, uh, CEO of Citigroup at the time. Uh, they were asking him, were we in a bubble? And he said, yeah, but you've got to dance while the music's playing. I remember that. And that, unfortunately, that is as sad as it is true. It is. Uh, I, I got to know him, by the way. I played golf with him up in uh, Connecticut a few years ago. What a nice, charming guy. I guess all those guys are. Really charming guy. But, you know, you dance while the music's playing, but, boy, you better stay close to the chair because that game of musical chairs is very, very expensive. Uh, when, when that music stopped. Uh, you know, the president said something, Jim, a couple of weeks ago. He said, you know, if the Fed had not raised these rates, the market would be 10,000 points higher. And I thought, you know, that's probably right. And wouldn't it be awful? And thank goodness for the Fed that we don't have that kind of bubble price. There's no question about it. And by the way, a president wanting lower rates while he's president um, to get high stock asset prices does not seem very newsworthy to me. The president being as vocal and as open about it he is certainly changes it, of course. But every time I hear him say it, I just think to myself, you know, that 
famous story where supposedly I think it was Reagan and Paul Volcker and him basically telling him to ease or he's going to lose his job behind closed doors. I might have the players wrong, but this kind of thing has happened to pretty much every president except for one, and that was Barack Obama because he had the luxury of zero rates for the entire eight years. So he never needed lower rates, but every president wants lower rates. I don't think he should be tweeting it out there, though. You know, a president, I don't think he ought to be tweeting it out there. He needs to leave the Fed alone. The independence of the Fed needs to be sacrosanct. I mean, if you don't get that, I mean, it, you make the Fed political and you'll have another Congress, basically, situation. Look how well good they've done with money. Or worse, you, you read the thing that Stanley Fisher said about the December hike. Possibly was, was they didn't even really want to hike anymore, but they also didn't want to look like they were bending the knee to, the, to a, you know, a relatively abusive president. So, so perhaps that hike came just because they were, you know, scared to not hike because of what he was saying. The president saying he wants a rate hike is like a five-year-old saying he wants an ice cream cone. Morning, noon, or night, the five-year-old will say, yes, I want an ice cream cone. Of course, of course. But no presidents say they want a bubble bust uh, sort of, you know, cycle going on, of course, but they probably won't have it. Uh, well, they just want that bubble until they get reelected, and then they can let, let the other guy worry with it. Okay, Amen. Jim, I mean, you know, so you and I are seeing a pattern that we've seen for our careers, which are about in sync. I, I can't, I don't know. I started in 87. When did you start? As did I, same, same 87, July 87. 87. Okay. Yeah. That's a long time, ladies and gentlemen. Heck it's a yeah. long time. 32 years later doing this every day. So as we are now trying to counsel Fred and Ethel, who listen religiously to you and sometimes me on uh, CNBC and on the Farcast, what do you tell them? Well, what I, what I do, this now we're switching from my trader hat to my investor long-term markets hat. And what I remind myself every six months is that rebalance according to what my risk tolerance is. So if we have a, a really awesome six months and stocks have rallied 20%, you rebalance. Probably a yearly thing, too. I think the problems really happen when you let it ride for five great years and you keep thinking, wow, this is awesome. The stock market keeps going up. And then all of a sudden it doesn't, particularly when it happens on a bad time in your career, uh, you know, when you're getting towards the end. Um, I think that that's a terrible thing. So I think you've got to never be greedy and keep rebalancing to what your risk taste is. I think that is absolute best advice you're going to hear anywhere in the media anytime this week or month, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to Jim Murio. Take a look at your uh, equities and see if the price of your equity percentage is now up at 80% and you and your advisor have decided you should be at 70% or 60% and get back to where you should be. Prices are high. Don't dance too far from those chairs uh, because when that music stops, it's a uh, very desperate race, and we don't want any of you uh, being, being desperate. Uh, terrific advice from my friend Jim Muriel. Jim, thanks so much for being with us on the Farcast. We always thanks for having me, Michael. So much. Appreciate oh, buddy, it. You're just the best. You're the best. It's wonderful to have you on. Ladies and gentlemen, when we come back, we're going to be talking about China and North Korea and how many more Democrats could enter this race. It's absolutely thrilling. When we come back on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to The Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and The Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. 
thanks so much for joining us and staying with us, of course. Terrific segment with Jim Murio. God, he's smart, and he just gets it. We do not need another. We don't need the Fed to ease. We don't. The economy's doing fine. Yes, there's a lot of noise, but the data are not horrible. And when they cut rates and you see stock prices go higher, as they did today, making new highs, that's multiple expansion. They're not being driven by earnings growth, ladies and gentlemen. We're not seeing, you know, uh, shares of Microsoft go higher because Microsoft's earnings are killing it. No, we're seeing Fred and Ethel willing to pay more for Microsoft because they know the Fed has their back, because the Fed is easing and they expect higher prices. So they're going to take those prices higher, making everything much more expensive. And if and when things have to come down, when the air comes out of the balloon, you go and, and if things fall to that level, rest on that level that is supported by fundamentals. So this is the stuff that causes bubble. I'm not saying, nor is Yurio saying, we are in bubble territory yet. But you start easing at that Federal Reserve during a time when the economy is reasonably sound, and you will create a bubble. Jim and I have been in this business for 32 years each. That's 64 years together. Not that that matters so too damn much, but uh, uh, we've seen this. We've been through it, and we've lived through those down times. Not only, uh, I mean, we were in the business in 1987 during the big uh, stock market crash in Black Monday. Uh, we've we've done this uh, dot com bubble. We did 2000 and 2001 and 9/11, and we certainly did the banking crisis in 08 and 09 as the Dow Jones Industrial Average went from 14,000 down to 6,700. Now we're back up at 27,000 almost on the Dow. We've got a 3,000 or so on the S&P 500, and many people calling for a 3,300, another 10% higher before year end on the S&P 500. That would be like a 30% return on the year for the S&P 500. Absolutely remarkable conversations. Earnings aren't up 30%. Ladies and gentlemen, they're not. They're up 5 or 6%. So a lot of this is just price gains, and you have to be careful. As we've said, emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. Don't get carried away in all of the hoopla and feel good, and it's everybody's doing it. Uh, that explanation, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school and I'd go home to my father and explain why uh, we'd, the police had showed up to this party, I said, well, but, Dad, everybody was – you know what he said. He could give a damn about everybody. By the way, my father's 93 in pretty good health, and he could still give a damn about everybody. Uh, only, only cares that you toe the line for you. Dan Mahaffey is the senior political analyst for the Farcast, also senior vice president, director of policy for the Center of the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Uh, one of the smartest guys I know, master's degree in security studies with a concentration in U.S. defense policy from Georgetown University. Bachelor's degree from Georgetown uh, in government with minors in history and Mandarin Chinese, studied at East China Normal University in Shanghai, where he uh, studied, uh, uh, had advanced language studies and did research on U.S., China, and Taiwan trilateral relations. Welcome back to the Farcast, Dan. Good to be talking with you, Michael. Thanks for having me back. I'm very, very glad you're with us. Uh, I'm sorry for my long introduction, and I wouldn't have done it, but I know that we have two segments with you tonight. Uh, Very lucky to be talking about all of what's going on around the world and in Washington as we cover 
uh, on the forecast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Who better than Dan Mahaffey? Tell us, Dan, uh, what happened at the G20. Uh, the president met with President Putin and Premier Xi. Uh, what, what was? It looked like a really good week for the president. Well, look, I think the the G20 is something that I've always been a little bit skeptical of because you you have such differences between the countries that are there. It's not like the G7 where you have that close relationship between uh, industrialized democracies. You kind of get a, a, a catch-all of, of despots and Europeans and Americans and, and the whole world there. So, so I've always kind of... <laughs> You know, Michael, as you imagine, when we look at it in terms of a, of a global governance standpoint, that we kind of have this uh, this fun vestige of when we were scrambling after the 2008 financial crisis uh, to try and bring the world together um, right. in that sense. Um, but yeah. you you do have this, uh, you know, these meetings with, uh, with Putin and Xi where, you know, I, I don't want to harp too much on the meetings with Putin because, you know, chuckling about election interference, you know, both of them yucking it up about that um, w- was not a good look. I think the, the, the she one in the longer term that we need, and I think we want to parse that out in more detail. Um, that was one where you see there is this gap between the U.S. and China, and I don't know where the president honestly goes from here on this. I think we, we end up repeating this cycle and we'll get to the end of it in a few months and we'll be faced with the decision of do we settle for a mediocre deal or do we do we still continue this uh, kind of groundhog day of, of uh, you know, are the Chinese like Lucy okay. pulling up the football so, as Charlie Brown kicks? So, Dan, when we, when we talk about uh, the meeting with uh, Putin, President Putin, uh, other than it being, you know, un- unfortunate in appearance for the president, nothing was done, nothing really happened, and they made light of something that was very serious and 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 distasteful. Yes, the election. Well, yeah, yeah. So I don't. I don't really see there? much. Yeah, I don't really see much substantive uh, coming out of of those those talks between President Trump and President Putin. So tell me what was substantive that came out of the talks with President Xi. Let's go to Xi and talk yeah. about China. What was substantive there? Why was that uh, such a good meeting, and why are markets so happy? Well, markets are happy because they want to see progress, and they want to see a resumption of the trade talks. This has been a, a, a major headwind for the markets, uh, and the uncertainty surrounding that for the companies that uh, have the, the international supply chains and all those factors uh, pressure from groups that don't want to see these tariffs go ahead. Um, so look, look, we've bought time on having those tariffs pop back up again. That's that's fantastic uh, as we continue the negotiations. But in the longer run, these these dialogues, the the gap between the U.S. and China on some of these issues of technology, uh, the vision for what the Chinese economy is going to look like, how they reform that, I just see there being far too much daylight, and that we're going to be back where we were. Uh, in you know later in this year, I would say September, October, um, unless the president really decides to go purely transactional uh, and accept a deal that is just uh, something that will make his base happy. So are you saying then that really nothing has changed week over week other than grip and grin and that there's been an, an, an agreement to talk a little bit more, but uh, – there's been nothing all that substantive, and that's what's driven markets to new highs? 
I think markets are happy to see that they're that they're talking again. They 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 like that jaw jaw is better than war war at least a, a trade war, um, in this instance. Uh, but beyond that, where where are we going to move on the technology issues? Where are we going to move on getting rid of some of the state aid for these Chinese companies that are propped up by their government? And I don't see any uh, any push on that. You know, the the president gave up on the on the Huawei issue. Uh, which is going to have did the, he give the up security hawks back off, Dan? Did he give up or back off? What happened on the Huawei well, issue? I think the his advisors want to keep that ambiguous uh, to continue the pressure on the national security front. But then when he goes off the cuff during the press conference and says, "Well, Huawei is actually not that bad," you know, we can figure out a way to deal with it, even though he's we've had our uh, our uh, officials, Secretary of State Pompeo being one of them, going around the world telling them, don't use Huawei, don't, don't do this. Um, and then that just kind of undercuts that message. Is there actually a threat? Which I agree with those who say there's a threat. But is there an actual threat or is this just some bargaining chip that we're trying okay, to get so other countries to go along now, with? Now, uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, Schumer uh, on, the, on the Democratic side and Marco Rubio both uh, were, shall we say, vexed uh, by the president's change in position on Huawei. Uh, uh, they didn't think, uh, they thought certainly that they wanted more details um, because Huawei seen as a, as a lot of people by the, as an arm of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, it's, it's, it's government-owned, held, controlled kind of a thing. Yes? Yeah, and, and no, definitely. And, and first, first factor is when you have the, the intelligence and security experts telling you to, to stay clear of this and that Huawei is the biggest exemplar of a, a Chinese company that's using government support, intellectual property theft, and its own closed market to undercut Western companies, not just U.S. companies. And so there's the, the economic risk on top of the cybersecurity risk of having this equipment in your networks and to to handle that as a bargaining chip in the trade relationship cheapens the the message we've been trying to send on the uh, both economic and actual security you, issues you, raised you by the company. You said that you think you think you said that you think Huawei is dangerous. You think they represent a danger. But quickly because we're kind of at the end here of our first segment. What kind of danger does Huawei represent to the United States and the world? Well, we're going to, it's the issue is surrounding 5G networks, and that's going to be the network that connects everything, not just your cell phones, but your appliances, industrial equipment, and it's going to harness data and information in ways that networks have not done before. And being able to control that or interfere with that, and if Huawei equipment is able to do that, you are severely undermining the security of what is going to be the most critical digital infrastructure we're going to have uh, probably in this in this in the next few decades. Okay, all right. Uh, but while it seems to me that five G, I'm already seeing it around the U.S. and five G is going to be working on these mm -hmm. phones. And that, how long till we see five G in the U.S.? I think you're going to start to see it in the next year or so, particularly as handset makers uh, start to uh, put five G chips into their uh, you know your iPhones or your your droids, um, and you're going to start to see it come out more. Um, in, in cities, but we're going to have longer-term issues that the U.S. needs to also figure out uh, looking closer to home in terms of how we unlock spectrum and get 5G to uh, rural areas as well. Uh, so it seemed that uh, Peter Navarro uh, was probably not happy with the president's performance. Uh, Josh Bolton, 
I don't think was particularly happy. What happens to those guys? Look, I think they uh, – John Bolton, not Josh Bolton. Um, I'm sorry, John Bolton. We, yeah. Thank you. Um, John Bolton, yeah, John Bolton's not happy with any of this as well as the whole North Korean thing. I think that's why we saw him sent to Mongolia uh, following the G20. Um, yeah, right. You, I mean, you, I mean Mongolia. Yeah. I mean, it's Siberia. I mean, you're out. Go take a trip. Yeah, that, that's yeah, and I think Navarro and others who are saying, look, this is a fundamental uh, issue. Are want Trump to be this person who changes the generational glide path between the U.S. and China, uh, but he's thinking in terms of a, a short-term transactional relationship with President Xi. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about what happened. Uh, what happened in North Korea. The president visited North Korea, which is something we've never been able to say. Uh, Also, how does all of this play out, all of this political theater? What is this going to mean for markets, and what does it mean for the U.S. economy? Uh, Is this part of an overall strategy the president's using to kind of keep pressure on the Fed, get them to ease, and then sort of resolve all this trade stuff and get himself elected? Is it a grand scheme? Is it a, is it a quiet conspiracy? I want you to answer that when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much. We're going to be back for segment three in just about 30 seconds. Please stay with us on The Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. You're listening to Forecast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Forecast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information, or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com, or call me at 202-530-5608. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us as we get ready for the 4th of July holiday here. Markets are making new highs. Tesla stock surging after setting a new delivery and production record here. We're seeing that stock move up. Uh, Amazon's making grocery brands pay for losses on their Prime Day promotion. Very interesting move on behalf of Amazon. And the women's soccer team beat England 2-1, to one, advancing. Uh, this is very exciting. The United States women uh, are just absolutely killing it. Uh, it's terrific, absolutely terrific. Well, welcome back for segment three of the forecast where we discuss Wall Street, Washington, and the world and how all of this is going to affect investors And as we are discussing uh, the G20 meeting or what happened in China or what happened in North Korea as the president uh, went in or what's happening or not happening with Iran uh, and at the United Nations, you're seeing uh, week over week this sort of good news, feel good come out of these meetings in Europe and stock prices are going higher. Uh, So it's not just all the Fed, uh, ladies and gentlemen, 
this is also uh, the feel good that perhaps trade is being resolved and everybody's singing kumbaya and we're not saying, saying nasty things to each other again. But as we talk with Dan Mahaffey in segment two tonight, we found that really there wasn't much of substance that happened in any one of those meetings other than very nice smiles and handshakes, except for perhaps the fact that the president uh, backed off on a couple of things. He got to joke with Putin about interference in our elections and Mahaffey and Farr can't figure out why they would be joking about such a serious topic. But with President Xi, uh, it sounds like maybe the president uh, said some nicer things about uh, how the United States would treat the uh, big telecom giant Huawei. Uh, and when you're in a negotiation, if you're, going to, if you're going to give something, you're supposed to get something in return. And I'm not sure what the president got there. Moreover, I'm not at all sure what the president got in the reported offer or proffer uh, to um, Kim Jong-un uh, that maybe they could keep their current nukes, but they couldn't add any more nukes. Uh, that would be a huge win for Kim Jong-un, but what, what, did, what did the president get in return? These uh, facts are a bit sketchy, and uh, uh, so we're going to go to our expert, Dan Mahaffey, from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, the senior political uh, analyst uh, on the forecast. And so, Dan, uh, let's go now to North Korea, if you will. The president showed up, and the president of the United States walked into North Korea. Why is that such a big deal? Look, it's a big deal for the president to cross the, the DMZ and set foot on North Korean soil, one of the most isolated, uh, brutal regimes on earth. But I don't know what he got out of it more than a photo op when you think about the actual uh, details of the deal in their nuclear program, particularly if we're no longer going for disarmament, but simply a, a nuclear freeze. Uh, those are the kind of things that you seem you think would be more of a a reward after a deal rather than a, a negotiating tactic early on. It seems that they were uh, that that uh, the Trump's staff was not at all happy. We talked about uh, Peter Navarro. We talked about John uh, Bolton earlier. What what does that do? So if I if I'm uh, chief of staff uh, at the White House. Um, what do I have to do to keep the troops in line if, you know, basically everybody thinks that we're on the same page, here's the, here's the United States agenda, here's what the president is going to go advance for the United States in these conversations, and the president kind of goes off on a 45-degree angle in a different direction. How does that play when they get back into the White House, and how does, this, how does Nick Mulvaney uh, acting chief, I guess he's acting chief of staff. He hasn't been named chief of staff. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So acting chief of I, staff, you know, I, I, how, how does he deal with it? I think if you, if three years in, if you're going into this White House and not expecting these curveballs, um, I don't think you, you did your research before taking the job. Um, <laughs> well, I think you, you, ha yeah. you, have, you have to assume this is the environment you're going to be setting and making policy in, and, and there's no process or policy process that counts uh, beyond what the what the president ultimately decides so how does that how does that now uh, how does that affect when we come back to the United States uh, the president returns home how does he um, how does he kind of get back to center or 
you know, I suppose the president can just walk away and say, well, I didn't mean any of that either. Here's what we're going to do. I want the tariffs again. I mean, I, 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 can he be that unpredictable? Or, or what does he have to do to maintain credibility uh, with China and North Korea? And then I want to talk about Iran. Well, with North Korea, I think you have to continue to push on them. And the problem is that each of these uh, summits or these appearances with Kim Jong-un have given, uh, have given Kim the propaganda victory, as well as weakened the perception of other countries that they need to continue the pressure on North Korea with the sanctions, uh, restrictions on energy supplies, things like that. Uh, right. Those all get, get weakened. And then, so you're, you're giving away some of the leverage at the same time. What are, what are we actually getting in return? And, and what could be, as you mentioned, what tweet is there going to be in a week or two that maybe tariffs are back or maybe we're, we're not getting the, the progress we want? Uh, look, I think the, the, the North Koreans and, and I think the Chinese are going to figure this out too. Give him that big photo op or something to celebrate and don't give him anything actually uh, tangible or worthwhile, and, and maybe you can, you can get through this administration. Dan Mahaffey is president of the – if you were president of the United States, Dan Mahaffey is now president of the United States, would you have, uh, would you have gone into North Korea? Oh, never. Not, not without – Never. Uh, without ma- never. Without major – I would not – you look at the front page of the North Korean newspapers where the – the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, is standing equal to a man who has a rogue nuclear program, starves his people, and runs death camps that we haven't seen since the Nazis. And you're putting him on the same podium as the United as the president of the United States. I would never do that. Why does this president do that? I think he sees it as a a one of those things that no president has ever done it. It's a it's a way to create his own historical narrative on this issue. He thinks it could be the, the, the ultimate deal ever made between the United States and this, this hermit kingdom. Uh, but beyond that, what's the, what are the actual tangible things we're getting in terms of the uh, resolving their nuclear program, their political system, their, their destabilizing role in the region? And what is the message this sends to, you mentioned the Iranians. If I'm in Tehran right now, I want to get a nuclear weapon as quickly as possible. Let's shift to Tehran right now. Uh, Tehran and, the, and Iran are under a great deal of economic pressure. Uh, they're not selling oil, uh, and they're an, economic, uh, they're an ex- economic extremist right now. Tell us how bad things are in Iran, how bad this pressure is. I mean, certainly they're getting more and more vocal. They're squealing like, you know, bloody murder. Uh, what what if, what t- tell us explain what's going on in Iran right now and how this is going to play out we're really squeezing their the the formal economy it's the it's the shadow economy that's run by the uh, by the ayatollahs that we need to keep putting the pressure on as well we saw that with some of the new sanctions on the uh, on ayatollah khamenei and the other uh, the other leaders of the uh, iranian revolutionary guard um, th- those those uh, groups uh, but still you have, and we saw this, I think it was in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, one of them today, I saw the story of how the, the oil tankers approach the Iranian coast, turn off their yes. transponders. They're, they're empty when they get there, but they're full when they leave. So there's a black market that's still getting around these sanctions, and the, the economic pressure is not hitting uh, the regime as much as it's hitting the Iranian people. Um, 
but you you have this uh, where look they're feeling some amount of the pressure, but where do you go? What's what's the off ramp we're giving them for a deal right now? Right now, all I'm seeing is get your nuclear weapons so you can be on a similar level to the North Koreans before you go uh, into any kind of negotiation. And and meanwhile, let you see in Yemen, Lebanon, Syria. Uh, our allies in the in the region going nuts about this these uh, the way that Tehran's still able to destabilize through these militias and proxies. So okay, so you, you what what would you now now we're going to go back and uh, Dan Mahaffey is now president of the United States again. Uh, what would you be doing with Iran? Uh, were you president right now? Well, look, I would look at the Iran deal as the, the original Iran deal, the Obamas, as a starting point, but I would still then try and get the Europeans, uh, perhaps the Chinese, India, Japan. I, you know, I don't know if you get the Russians on side at this point, but then start to look at how do you get pressure on the Iranian economy from all sides to say you've got to stop with some of these ballistic missile programs, you've got to stop with this destabilization of the region, uh, or say, look, You've either got to make a deal, or we're going to we're going to pull back from the region because, look, it's up to the Saudis, it's up to the the Sunni Arabs to start to take more responsibility for their security as well. So, how do you get that international coalition on on one side, but also tell your allies, look, they've got to do more. Um, we're we're selling them tons of of weapons and support for their militaries, but we're not getting the efficacy that we need where the, the U.S. isn't the only one carrying this burden for security in the region. So what happens uh, What what happens now uh, under the Trump presidency? Because Mahaffey uh, still is not president. So, ladies and gentlemen, I encourage you to uh, hold all tickets because that could still happen someday. This, is, uh, this young man, believe it or not, for as bright as he is, uh, is still in his – you're in your early 30s, are you not? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you you, yeah. you have early 30. You are too you are too young to be elected as president of the United States right now, correct? Correct. Yes, twenty next not, year, twenty twenty four next cycle. I guess if you want to start the the uh, the draft Mahaffey movement, and, and please don't do that. I, I think that that's a great thing to do, and I will start by calling your mother uh, right after the uh, right after the Farca. Oh, per- all right, per- perfect, <laughs> perfect, because uh, I know how she feels about it. Uh, I've, I've uh, spoken, uh, no Dan's mother, um, and she has uh, explained to me that um, uh, he's, he's uh, just like every other boy, except that he walks to work across the Potomac River every morning, um, uh, walking, on, walking on water as all sons do in their mother's eyes. Uh, well, that's the, so, that's the, the listener base of this program, is all the, all the happy mothers hearing their, uh, their sons and daughters join the forecast. Exactly. That's and then look, just please keep listening, uh, Mom. We appreciate it. Uh, okay, Dan. Uh, how does so uh, with with Iran? Does this blow up or not? And we're already out of time. I can't believe it with everything that we're doing, uh, and and we've still got to come back to figure out if if, if uh, Joe Biden is still in the race or not. Is he is he going to make it or not? Before we go, so tell me, how does this play with Iran? Is this going to be successful? Are they going to put enough pressure on or not? So with the uh, Iranians, I, can, I see this continuing to stay in a limbo where they want to try and push uh, to get that nuclear weapon or bolster their uh, advantage before you go into negotiations. Because look at the difference between how the North Koreans have been handled 
compared to those regimes that did not get nuclear weapons, uh, such as the history we saw with Saddam Hussein, as well as Muammar Gaddafi, how they ended up because they didn't have the bomb compared to those who do have the bomb. Right, right. Okay, so uh, limbo until they figure out what to do, and perhaps these uh, economic pressures will be sufficient that we can formulate some sort of a safer uh, outcome for certainly the Middle East and the United States as a, as, as a result. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, you know, if something really goes bad in Iran or uh, in the Persian Gulf, again, you'll see stock prices fall. I mean, it's the stability and the predictability that support prices and markets. And that's not a given with all that's going on, not even close to a given. Dan, speaking of not givens, uh, we, mm-hmm. it, it was a given that uh, that Joe Biden was the man in terms of the Democratic candidates for uh, president. Uh, is he a given still? And, and tell us about uh, uh, Kamala Harris and, and, and who, who really uh, is, is leading. And can Joe come back or is he gone? I'll say he, he's lost some he's lost some of his luster. I think Kamala Harris and, and uh, Elizabeth Warren did well out of those debates. Look, we haven't gotten much polling, and it's also not great uh, polling responses uh, traditionally during the summer. I think we need to see the uh, next debate, who makes it one, who makes it on that stage, and two, how does Biden bounce back or not before we, before we make any uh, prognosis on his campaign. Uh, so when you and I come back in the fall and start talking again, we're going to be looking for a Biden bounce or a bounce back. Uh, that will matter to markets. Ladies and gentlemen, if we uh, have, uh, we will be back a couple of times over the summer with a couple of forecasts. Uh, they are not going to be scheduled until we get back into the fall. Our next one, scheduled ones in September. We're certain that markets will uh, create enough news. And as we hear from you and we get calls and notes and emails, we will be back. We want to make sure that we don't leave you and you don't get too lonely without us for the summer. Please know how grateful we are for your listenership. Uh, for your fidelity uh, so much uh, these few years we've been doing the forecast. We appreciate it very much. We are very grateful for you. We hope these are informative and educational and help you walk away with a couple of new ideas perhaps you didn't have before you tuned in. With a very grateful heart, and this week from Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, I'm Michael Farr for the forecast. Thank you for listening to tonight's forecast. We'd like to remind you that if you think you have heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security on the show tonight, well, you haven't. The forecast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you speak with an investment professional. And if we can be of any assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please give us a call at 202-530-5600 or email us at invest at And one of our investment professionals will be glad to help. Every week, we talk with insiders and experts to bring you insights into the forces shaping our economy. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy making the show for you. This episode marks the end of our second season, and now over 80 episodes. As we begin our summer hiatus, we are grateful for your listenership and support. It's been a pleasure bringing these shows to you. Until next time, on behalf of Michael Farr, our production engineer Claude Jennings, and myself, Harry Jennings, thanks from all of us at The Farcast. The Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.